Hi everyone, my name is Andreas Feiner and I would like to welcome you to our podcast, Important Problems. Together with my wonderful guests, we will address urgent problems such as sustainability, nature and mental health and how we can tackle them. Our aim is to show you that everyone can solve important problems. Hello, everyone. Today we are meeting Ignaze Schulz. Ignaze is a role model. Um, Ignaze has built the first national park in Belgium. He has won uh, basically the equivalent of the Nobel Prize uh, for that. He was also the leader of Europarks, and he's doing lots of other very interesting things. And we will learn about this today. So please uh, join in, in this conversation with Ignaze. Hello, Ignaze. How are you? I'm fine. I'm very fine. I'm feeling good. And uh, I feel for the first time that it's beginning to become autumn because last week it was yeah, warm, too warm. Mm -hmm. uh, but today and this week in Belgium, at least, we feel autumn. And that's a good feeling, I think, that we still feel what uh, seasons are. Yeah, for sure. Okay, yeah. It's the same here in Frankfurt. It's, yeah. uh, you know, leaves are falling and it's wet and it's, yeah. you know, it's not cold, but it's a little bit colder yeah. than than it was usually. So, Ignace, um, you know the format. You know, we have yeah. like uh, three buckets. You know, first is, you know, we want to get to know you as a person. Mm -hmm. The second is we want to learn about the problems that you've identified. And the third is, you know, what is your contribution um, that you're making? Um, and uh, if you're okay, we'd love to dive into the first one and, you know, get to know you if you would like to introduce yourself to everyone that's listening. Yeah, yeah. So my name is Inja Schops. I'm a Belgian. I'm living at the northeastern part of Belgium at the Limburg region, very, so very near to the border of Maastricht. Um, and I'm a son of a coal miner and a housewife. Uh, but since my youth, I was very much involved and interested in, in biodiversity, nature, you know, like all kids of my age were at the time. Um, and during my youth, I was uh, very much involved also in uh, maybe social things. Maybe I can uh, express it as, as that because I started a new, uh, my own youth club thinking differently than, let's say, most of the organized uh, world, uh, which became very successful. And the other passion I had was frogs and lizards and snakes. <laughs> so whenever I, I had time, I was, was really looking into the meadows and the ponds and, you know, the lakes to find some yeah, some frogs. And uh, approximately, I think it was like 30, 35 years ago, I was looking for the tree frog, huh? the Laubfrosch, they say in German, uh, okay. and doing some research then already with, with, the, with the tree frog. I was uh, in a pond standing there and suddenly they are really croaking very hard, these little beautiful grass green uh, animals. And there was just one who was sitting approximately one meter from me, and he didn't want to escape. He stood next to me, and he kept on croaking. And suddenly I got a feeling that he was trying to tell me something. At least that was what I felt. And to me, at that time, he said to me, please save me, because we need human beings to save what keeps us alive because biodiversity and natural ecosystems are existential for our, for our survival as well. Mm -hmm. And that moment 30 years ago was so close to my heart that I thought, okay, why 
don't I try to try to safeguard tree frogs, nature, uh, if you mm. take it broadly. And because I became in, at that moment convinced that really, if we can do that, nature will save us. So wow. that was something very important in my life. And so I studied then herpetology. So did a lot of research on tree frogs and midwife toads and lizards and snakes. And uh, by doing that, I, of course, became uh, much involved in the nature conservation organizations in my country. And um, I was, let's say, someone who was really into talking about that, trying to find translations and also storytelling. Um, and again, a few years later, there were friends of me were telling me that you are good in storytelling. You can convince even the unconvinced. Uh, so you need to think about your position. Do you want to go for researcher in biodiversity and herpetology, or do you want to really change something and try to yeah, connect politicians, decision makers by your stories so you can do and bring your heart from your, your, your biodiversity heart into this decision making? Because we saw something very, yeah, let's say dangerously, hap dangerously happening. That is that biodiversity was falling apart. There was a silent collapse of our planet. And what we see now in the 21st century, of course, is yeah, we had an ecological shutdown, a climatic breakdown, a financial meltdown, and a virological lockdown. So yeah. the question then is, if we cannot change systemically, in 20 years' time from now, we are more haunted by the things we didn't do than by the things yeah. we do. So I am very much, yeah, how to say, convinced and energized by that change is possible because I really want to show that it is possible if we can save and cure ourselves from, from our addiction for, to short-term investments and bring them into or turn them into long-term investments that, is, that are planet-saving. And as a young guy thinking about all these big problems on the, in the world, uh, uh, then suddenly something happened in my region because we are a former coal mining region. And in 1991, the last coal mine, coal mine was closed. And directly and indirectly, 60,000 people became unemployed. So it was a very harsh period for our region. And the yeah, what the governments would like to do was a, a reindustrialization of the region, and we thought no, that's not good a good idea because the the, the the natural scenery of my region was so beautiful that we thought that we could use that as an asset for social and regional development as well. But like always, they didn't believe us at the beginning. So how did you make them believe you in this? Well, the. To make a long story short, by translating biodiversity into a language they could understand. And that's the socio-economic language. Because okay. well, I, I was really lobbying with ministers and talking and telling them stories about tree frogs. And now <laughs> they're not minister anymore, but I still know them. And they said to me, these stories are wonderful, but I couldn't do anything with your story to make a next decision. And also mm. for me at the time, it was it was something, a lesson that I took back, saying, can I translate biodiversity into a language that they do understand? 
And mm -hmm. yeah, you know, basically it is the socioeconomic language. And so what we saw that uh, by translating that and convincing then politicians uh, to say, why don't you invest in the natural heritage? Because the first thing we did and with an NGO that, that we started was to create a cycling network, a cycling network okay. in a beautiful scenery in the Limburg region, a province in the northeastern part of Belgium. Um, nobody believed us in the beginning, but very mm -hmm. soon after, it became a huge success. In okay. this region and Flanders, they still think it's the eighth world wonder eh? that mm. cycling in a beautiful region is good for your health, of course, but it's also good for wildlife because uh, besides the cycling network, we, we are planting trees and, and hedges and uh, digging ponds and things like that. And what we did immediately, immediately at the time was trying to calculate what the, what the economic impact was of cycling. Because okay. people don't cycle an entire day. They stop, they go for a drink, they eat, they stay the night over, things like that. Because the reason for to come was wildlife, was the beautiful landscape. Mm -hmm. So it became a huge, a huge success. And for my province, just to give you a number, eh, for at the moment nowadays, so at, at this moment, hiking and cycling in my province it has an annual turnover of 250 million euros. This is local money by local entrepreneurs that is earned. So you see that working on this natural heritage is very interesting. So it became a huge success. How do you calculate that number, if I may interject? That? Well, we do that electronically. So this, you can do that with cables on the road where they wrote. And then we do uh, questionnaires eh, to ask people, mm -hmm. where are you come from? How long are you staying? What is your spending behavior? And then mm -hmm. we, uh, we, we we calculate all these, these numbers and we see in other, the neighboring countries if there are similar outcomes or not. So mm -hmm. there is, a, let, let's say, a scientifically uh, proved that this, this, these numbers are correct. Huh? Mm -hmm. So And so once we knew that people would love to come and to visit the beautiful, to cycle in a beautiful region, we thought then, and now I talk in 1997, let's mm -hmm. make nature sexy. That was the next step. Do something really where we are fond of, make nature okay. sexy. Uh, and you hear immediately, we didn't say we have to bring in the, the, the European bird director or the, or the European habitat director into action. No, we translate it as make nature sexy. And mm -hmm. then we started to uh, design a model, which is called the reconnection model, because we try to reconnect, reconnect society, local community, with nature again, because we have lost the, the connection, at least in mm -hmm. Western Europe, we know now. And mm -hmm. this reconnection model has uh, four uh, main sentences or more uh, main topics. It's reconnect nature with nature, reconnect mm -hmm. people with nature, reconnect business with nature, and reconnect policy with practice. Okay. Uh, and so with very simple principles, so the national park that we then uh, thought that this could be very sexy. Huh? We created the first and only and at the time only national park in Belgium. So mm -hmm. where with smart designing, all the visitor facilities were located outside of the park so that oh. the carrying capacity of wildlife can be even strengthened in the park, in the national yeah. park. Because otherwise you yeah. could say you attract a lot of people, millions of people who visit it and it is a very bad thing for nature. But by 
organizing and locating all these visitor facilities outside the park, very close to the churches who are nearby in the communities, okay. you see something very beautiful happening. That is that all these local entrepreneurs, butchers, pub owners, hotel owners, they are starting to make a better business, Money. of course. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they become an ambassador for the national park, even though mm. we didn't have to do much because, because they're earning more money. Yeah. And again, and again, we said, okay, now we have to calculate that again. Mm -hmm. Can we calculate the, uh, the socioeconomic benefits of this national park? We did that uh, again with some scientific, uh, scientific institutes and universities based on uh, an international uh, model. It's called the TEEP model, the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, which mainly is trying to calculate the ecosystem services that a national park delivers. And the outcome was spectacular. It was 191 million euros a year directly and indirectly as a turnover and 5,000 mm -hmm. connected jobs. Yeah. And this was the moment that also the politi politicians started to call me now. I didn't have to go to them. They came to me and, and started to, to ask me, tell me again, what is this model and how does it work? And, and suddenly by translating, because I was still talking about my tree frog and the orchids and the whatever, but translated in, an, in a language they could understand, and then I had a moment, of course, to, to explain what is possible with restoring and safeguarding wildlife, that it is not something negative. It is mm -hmm. regional development. And the good thing is uh, now, and that's the, the follow-up, because I, due to the, the Goldman Prize, um, the, the Green Nobel Prize I received in 2008, I suddenly, and uh, uh, yeah, overnight, I become, let's say, internationally known. Mm -hmm. um, then I became the president of Europark Federation, which is the largest network on protected areas in Europe. Just to mm -hmm. give you a clue, four, 400 members in 40 countries in Europe uh, with a span of 40 million hectares. Huh? So really mm -hmm. huge. That's a lot. And so the outcomes that we had socioeconomically from our national park, I started to look into other countries. Do they have similar uh, results in their parks? And they had uh, and not only in Europe, also in other continents, they do some uh, similar research. And we come now to a very interesting conclusion, and that is that the best banking company in the world is the Nature Bank. Because now mm. we can really uh, have evidence, we have proof for that, that one euro invested in nature, in the bigger areas, benefits 10 euros the local economy there is no banking company in the world that gives this kind of yeah margins and uh, positive uh, benefits and that's interesting but where did you if I, if I may interject so where did you get the money from in order to build the the the, yeah. the, the cycling lanes i mean that's that's yeah. a significant investment yeah. and uh, so know, this was the time where you still were talking about tree frogs so how did you get that yeah done? yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so you have to know what i told you the coal mines were closing and then europe was trying to help these these regions who are having difficulties so mm. uh, we had some we wrote a project uh, we write this, we write a, a project uh, on cycling uh, and on new mm. cycle roads. So we got 50% of EU funding. Mm. So we then could go to <clears throat> our local communities, to our municipalities, telling them we have a beautiful idea of a cycling <laughs> network that doesn't only 
goes by cycling around the church, but we go across the the the, the borders of the mm. of your municipality, and guess what? We have already fifty percent of the investment. It costs mm. j for you. It costs just half, mm -hmm. and. Of course, that's easy. Of course, if you have that kind of fifty percent of the of the of the means of the financial means, then mm. yeah, they they were very keen to go on that. And then you see something beautiful happening, and yeah? it suddenly happens, and uh, entrepreneurs start to come because we go to beautiful mm. areas, an old farm, for instance. Then uh, an entrepreneur says, "Oh, I start there a little pub and things like that." So economy was mm. really growing again, and and that makes a difference. I think that. People really fast understood that you can make money out of a beautiful region as well. Huh? Mm -hmm. So the first money came from Europe and uh, let's say the, the local communities. Huh? The next mm -hmm. step, of course, for the national park, uh, as I told you, that uh, also the government they want to have a, a reindustrialization of the region. That was their goal, and we were protesting very hard. No, no, no! Don't do mm -hmm. this. We have a different idea, and so the the the. the the main, uh, let's say, the main, um, how to say, boss who need mm -hmm. to do the reconversion after the coal mine said to me, you're against everything. Are you having ideas to do something positive as well? So to make a long story short again, uh, then a part of the means that were, uh, were earmarked for the reconversion then could be earmarked for the Hoge Kempen National Park as uh, as a development, but conditioned. They mm. gave money to us, not on our account. It was somewhere in Brussels, uh, mm. but we had to find co-funding. If we mm. didn't find the co-funding, we were not able or not we, we could not invest anything. So we had to, mm. we need to have a euro for a euro. And mm -hmm. we the other thing was that we have to pre-finance everything. And as a small mm. NGO at the time, we didn't have any resources. So mm. I had to go to a banking company, then with a good story mm. again that I had an idea. And if they give me a loan of 1 million euros, I really could really accelerate and multiply them the money. So And then the first, because the opening of the National Park was in 2006, and since then until now, we have already, I think, an investment amount totally approximately of $150 million invested in the national park, found money everywhere, local communities, mm. entrepreneurs, Europe, Flanders, uh, with a lot of, let's say, uh, convincing arguments. And also the next coming years, if you look now to the future for the national park, the next five years, we're going to invest again 110 million euros. So you see that suddenly when it becomes a success, a lot of mm. organizations, uh, governments, they start to believe in it and say, okay, let's invest more because we see that the local community is, is making a living out of that. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, the reconnection model, of course. And that's, of course, uh, because of my international uh, uh, recognition, a lot of mm -hmm. other regions now are interested. So, for instance, uh, there is in, in South Korea, they're working with the, this model. Uh, in the Baltic states, they're working with that. And it's a guiding model. Eh? It's not something that I sell. It's for free. It's just to, 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 to have a guideline how to do, uh, how to do so. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, in my story, as still now, you maybe uh, say that, okay, I was turning a little bit more to that economic approach because this is what helps a lot in the decision making mm -hmm. um, and 
I must admit that the more I'm uh, into biodiversity, the more I'm interested in how financing works. Huh? Because mm -hmm. what we see now, of course, is the silent, the silent collapse of our planet. Huh? Mm -hmm. uh, climate, uh, the climate uh, change, global warming, the emissions are still increasing. We have our na natural ecosystems who are collapsing, collapsing. I think, I don't know if you know, but in 1937, 66% of the planet was wilderness. And now mm -hmm. in 2020, it's only 35%. So we are taking really all the nature Horrible. away. Huh? Mm. Again, today, huh? today, every minute, 10 soccer fields, 10 football fields are logged. Huh? Forests are logged. Huh? It's unbelievable how fast it goes. Huh? Biodiversity loss, unbelievable. One million species are threatened with extinction by the end mm. of the century. And maybe to give you what it means. Huh? So uh, imagine that you are going uh, and take a plane and you're sitting on the on the airport waiting to for your plane to fly, where, whatever, mm. uh, let's say, to San Francisco. And suddenly the, the voice says, uh, well, we are, we are going to start to board, take your boarding card. But there is one information that I would love to give you. And, and she says then on, on the microphone, we are flying to San Francisco, but the, the airplane misses six parts and three screws. <laughs> the question is then, do you step on the you plane? Most probably you don't. But for me, our planet is our living engine. Mm -hmm. And the species and the natural ecosystems are the parts and the screws. So mm -hmm. many, how many screws and parts species can we lose before our living engine is not working anymore? Mm. And for me, that is really going deep, of course. Eh? Because we think and we tend to think that nature conservation and nature is something for the national parks and the nature reserves. But I always mm. say, no, nature starts at your flowering pot at home. That's where we start. And nature is not only something of the biodiversity, the birds and the bees. It's mm -hmm. also about agriculture. Mm -hmm. Because I say now we have to make visible what is invisible. So the soil biodiversity, the, fer uh, the fertility of the soil is built up mm -hmm. by little creatures that live, uh, live in, 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 in fungi. Uh, the World um, Food Organization is, is really sh shouting that also the, the biodiversity of the soil is decreasing as fast as the birds and the bees. Mm -hmm. So if we don't take care of that, also our food system will collapse as well. It's about the monoculture, you know, like uh, I'm, I'm reading up a lot on permaculture at the moment. Yeah. Um, and uh, there is studies out there that says, you know, like if everybody, instead of having a lawn, um, you know, in their front garden, um, you know, would have a permaculture there, um, you know, that could uh, uh, make a big, big impact in terms of, you know, diversity and also in terms of climate change. Yeah. And, you know, there are studies out there and I do not know whether they are credible and, you know, whether they hold up to scrutiny. But, you know, they even say you can solve climate change with that, um, which is probably a big thing. For a big part, because we have to lose, of course, eating meat. Huh? That's what the other thing, of course, that's what, mm. one of the big, uh, let's say, questions, of course. Um, and it goes even further than agriculture. Huh? Also, our body biodiversity, every human being has more than two trillion living creatures in and on our body huh? mm. uh, and even this body biodiversity is decreasing very fast 
Yeah. So if we talk about biodiversity, we talk about everything. Yeah? Mm. And that's so important. And then, of course, we because you were saying that you <laughs> we were just talking before the the, the recording about COVID. Mm. And that's something interesting. What I, I, I wrote a book recently, uh, first in, in Dutch, and now it is translate, translated in English, where I'm have, very fond of that it is translated now and it has, has a bigger audience, of course. But COVID is so, so, so interesting to really look into uh, because mm-hmm. we thought before that when COVID started that we start to live completely different after the COVID period. But we didn't. We mm. didn't. But for me... There are four lessons to be learned out of COVID mm-hmm. that makes me hopeful. Okay. Firstly, we found the vaccine four times faster than we thought before by mm-hmm. international cooperation. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we listened to science again. Suddenly, mm-hmm. the scientists were important to, to have our direction right. Mm-hmm. Thirdly, we even changed our behavior with the mouth caps and the 1.5 meter social distance. We would have thought that we could do that. And the fourth thing is, the classical, let's say, uh, saying was, yeah, it must be feasible and affordable uh, because uh, COVID. No, suddenly it became a necessity to solve it. Mm. Interesting to see. Why was it? Because the the cause and effect of COVID is very nearby. Eh? Mm. You get the, the, the virus, you get sick, and maybe you, you die. So suddenly it became a necessity and money was there to solve it. And uh, for me, I thought, oh, this is interesting. How do we do that? If it becomes a necessity, how do we solve it then? And so across the world, we did it on this, in the same way. Mm. So we took a loan mm-hmm. and we put it outside of the official budget. Mm-hmm. So that means that the COVID solutions, we pay a loan. And in 30 years, we have paid this loan that we took globally uh, for COVID. Mm -hmm. Now, interesting for me then, I thought, okay, if we have to finance change, we have to change finance. Mm -hmm. It's important, I think. So my idea was, why don't we go for for an intergenerational planetary loan? Mm-hmm. An intergenerational planetary loan is a loan that we give to the next generation every time because we have to save our planet now and we cannot do that in five or ten years. We have to have a long-term yeah, say, objective here, a mm-hmm. spot on the horizon that we're really working to. So this intergenerational planetary loan is, is not on 30 years, but on 1,000 years. Mm-hmm. And who has to give, uh, who needs to give the money because it's about trillions of dollars or euros. So mm-hmm. it's the International Monetary Fund or, Fund or or the World Bank who has to give the money to the countries to make this loan happen. Mm-hmm. There are lots of economists at the moment who are laughing with me, mm-hmm. but there are a few that are following me and say, oh, interesting, because economy is just an agreement that we make with each other. Mm-hmm. So we need to redefine what value is. Um, and for, to give you an example to that, if you compare a diamond with wa- with a cup of water in value, then you say a diamond, yeah, that's so valuable. The cost of a diamond is, yeah, even the smallest part of the diamond is even more worth than a cup mm. of water. But you cannot save a life with a diamond, and you can do this with a cup of water. Mm-hmm. 
So we have to redefine what value is. And that's something that's really into my, you know, let's say, yeah, my thinking at the moment. So a lot of economists are thinking, well, that's, that's going very far with this intergenerational uh, planetary loan. But others are following. And then I think about, about Mahatma Gandhi, what he said. And he once said, first they ignore you, then they laugh with you, then they fight you, and then you win. So it's just, I use it as a, as a metaphor, of course. I come like, let's do so. And the other idea is also in now my, my English version of the books is, and that's also interesting, I think, for when, we, when you think about econo economics, is a tax shelter for nature to really yeah, accelerate the, the protection, the, the restoration of nature. So just imagine that there is a tax discount for mm. companies who invest in nature. Yeah. It's a simple thing. We do this in Belgium in the film industry. So if you look into the film industry internationally, the Belgian films are always nearly at an Oscar. And then you should say, such a small country, how come that we have so good films every year? Mm -hmm. And that's because of the tax shelter for the film industry. There's a lot of money going into this film industry because they have, of course, an, an advantage of the discount. Mm. So I think if we now have the same discount op opportunity for protecting wildlife, well, yeah. it's it's a win-win for everyone. Yeah, but the problem, I guess, you know, from with uh, um, you know the to to get the sense of urgency, you know, you said it earlier, you know, with COVID, yep. you know, you get infected, you get ill, you know, it hurts, you know, me the best thing at the moment, you know, <laughs> I feel it at the moment, but with uh, the loss of biodiversity. Um, you know, you don't even see the loss of biodiversity. No. And, uh, and hence, you know, like, uh, what are we talking about? Many people say, you know, like, um, and they do not want to give up anything um, which they feel they've earned with hard work mm -hmm. uh, just to save something which they can't see and feel. And that's unfortunately something that I can hear ma many, many more often um, than in the past is kind of, you know, this resistance to give up something um, for the benefit of climate, biodiversity, or yeah. other things. That's correct. Uh, so cause and effect are far, far apart from each other. Eh? So people doesn't see or doesn't feel biodiversity loss in their daily lives. Eh? And they, they, they project to what today is to in 10 years, in 20 years, because it's good today. Mm -hmm. So what can be go wrong? We don't feel it. At, yeah? So cause and yeah. effect is far away from each other. But there, are, there is something interesting. So every investment, because science tells us that biodiversity and climate change are really going down and they're existential. So we are, they are losing too. Mm -hmm. And every investment that we need to do to make a better wor world even to answer, to solve the problems of climate change and, and biodiversity loss mm. are good in, in, in investments. Mm -hmm. these, these are good things that we are doing. Every investment done in sake of biodiversity and climate change are good investments. Mm -hmm. It's not something that we make people poorer or whatever. Eh? So I know, of course, how it goes because I'm, that's what yeah, one of my topics. I give lectures all, all the time internationally as well. And this, how can we bring in also the people with, yeah, with some social backgrounds, huh? the, the, the gilet jaune, huh? so the, the, the yellow jacket, as they say, huh? mm. from how can we help them? Because that's a huge amount of people. If they don't feel that they are nursed, that they are taken care of, we mm. will not, yeah, come to the, the right solutions. 
Mm. Um, so that's also the, the social inclusions. We, uh, so also myself, I'm thinking a lot of that one. How can we bring also, let's say, the, the love, the passion for the planet into these hearts of these people? And some mm. you, we will never reach. But on the other hand, we have to make and to organize ourselves at the government level or at, at the political level mm. that all the decisions that we will take in the future times will be the right decisions, the most sustainable, the most sustainable decisions. That's why that's something else. What I do is that with some friends, I sued the Belgian government okay. for not fulfilling their climate duties. Uh, I started. I started with yes, sorry, I will tell you. I, we started in 2014, so a long time ago already, and mm. even nine years ago, ago, because I was protesting and singing and dancing for the climate for many years, and, and they you know they care. come they come <laughs> with me on the picture and say yes, it's important, but there was nothing, yeah, ch nothing changed, changed, mm. and uh, so then we came to the conclusion that we have to go. A step further, which means climate litigation. Mm. Uh, we started with 11 friends, and uh, the friends are journalists, rock stars, artists, so known people in Belgium. Okay. My idea was that if they are in the press, because they are often in the press, so they could bring their message, and it was free publicity, of course, then for our climate court case. But yeah. we thought at the beginning, let's make a movement as well. Try to involve the community as well to say we have to go uh, like people versus the state. So in one year, we had 11,000 people, followers, but not only simple followers who give their signature, but became co-plaintiffs. They wanted to go with us to court. So now we are up to 70,000. So it's one of the bigger court cases, people versus the state and climate litigation. Mm -hmm. And the good thing is here that we already won. Two years ago, we, we won and the just uh, decided that the Belgian governments, they didn't take care the duty of care. So was not. And also they violated the human rights. Mm. And now, very beautifully. So you're a troublemaker. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm an activist with passion. Huh? I love uh, it. But, <laughs> but what happened is, and you don't believe it, nothing. Nothing no. happened in Belgium. There was the same, uh, more or less the same uh, climate litigation in Germany mm -hmm. with the same outcome. So duty of care and human rights were violated. And mm -hmm. Angela Merkel, who was at the time still leading, immediately decided to go for minus 65% by 2030. Mm -hmm. In Belgium, nothing happened. Mm -hmm. So what did we have to do then? We, Of course, we had to say, what can we do now? We won. And what is then the next step? So we went into appeal to our own win. So to the higher court. Huh? We go to the higher courts. It's going into appeal. Because normally you win and then you stop and the opposites go to an appeal. But now we go into appeal and we ask the judge eh, to decide uh, reductions so that there is an obligation to reduce the greenhouse gases for us minus 61% by 2030. Mm -hmm. And we hope to have our decision by the end of uh, November this year. Mm. So, and it's 
this this climate litigation when that I started with my friends is used out is done out of love for the planet again. It's used as a crowbar bar for change that we can really bring this this very important topic to the politicians that they have at least some how to say some uh, obligation to change. And if we look back, just to make this thing, if we look back into what happened with asbestos, you know, asbestos mm. is very cancerous. Mm. And we, so we digged into history. And if you then think, well, how come that it's now forbidden to use asbestos? It's not because of politicians deciding at once, oh, yeah, it's cancerous, let's, let's forbid it. No, people got sick, people came to the street to protest, then scientific uh, research, and then litigation. Hmm. They went to court. And based on these court outcomes, asbestos is forbidden now. So that's what yeah gives us a lot of com uh, confidence to go to court as well. It's also democratic system. So we want to use democratic systems to change for the good for the people and the planet, of course. Mm. But the problem is, you know, and, and I, you know, first of all, I mean, this is huge. I really love that. But the the problem here in Germany for now is, you know, then actually, you know, when politicians then say yes, we need to reduce it by sixty five percent, but then what happens? You need to actually do it, and this is where rebellion sometimes starts. You know, I don't know if you follow the news, what's happening in Germany with the push to the far right, and and one of the things you know people are upset about is you know the Gebäude Energiegesetz, um, mm -hmm. you know basically the um, you know obviously the real estate sector is a big emitter. Um, mm -hmm. And you need to change, you know, the the carbon-based heating systems, you know, over time. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, to my mind, you know, the government did it actually quite nicely. You know, like if you read the the document, you know, there is lots of you know clauses to get out of it if you can't afford it. But what happens is obviously, um, you know, the you know some some politicians and some parties and some interest groups take this, and you know they're fear mongering. And people are basically, you know, frightened, you know, the state is now pushing me to, you know, change my heating system and I can't afford it. So what am I going to do? I mean, that's grossly simplified now, but but these are conversations that we are yes. having and it's used to... Yeah, but to we, have it, we have it as well. So, but we think that you have to start to have the first push, which is an obligation for governments to do so. That's step the first step. Mm -hmm. The second step, what we think that will happen, and, it, and also there we have a, a, a one domino block that has fallen already, that governments start to sue uh, the fossil sector as well. Mm. So now in California, last, last month, they sued the big fossil fuel, uh, fuel uh, companies for, not, uh, for, for still uh, polluting the planet. Good thing, huh? Mm -hmm. um, now, what you what you just said, how to reach a goal where also, yeah, the big emitters and and, and housing and, and things like how to change that. Um, firstly, to say that at at the European level, you see that the industry is going to the right direction. It's called the ETS, huh? so mm -hmm. the the, 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 the uh, trade system that was set up. For the industry, and every year they need to decrease their uh, their uh, emissions. That is working there, and even the economy is still growing in in Europe. Hmm. Secondly, there isn't so that's the ETS, but there's also the non ETS. That's what we do with the housing, mobility, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Difficult, 
very difficult because people say we don't have the, fi- the means to have an elect- electric uh, warming system and things like that. Again there, we are of course in the beginning of, of a, yeah, a transformative change. It's good to see uh, what is going on globally. Yeah? Mm-hmm. To start this story, I have to tell you about Edward O. Wilson. He said, okay. I don't know him. Edward O. Wilson, he died two years ago, and he was seen as one of the biggest scientists after Darwin. He was an ant specialist. He discovered 140 ants, mm-hmm. and he wrote a very interesting book, if you like to read. It's called Half Earth. Okay. So we have to preserve Half Earth to, yeah, to protect ourselves. But he said to me once, I, I, was, I was lucky to go with him two times uh, on, on, on the field, and he said to me, the most dangerous worldview is the worldview of those who have not viewed the world. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and that's why also in this transition that we need to go through now, we have to see whether there are maybe fantastic ideas or programs of methodologies across the, 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 the world that can also be of an, of an inspiration for Germany or Belgium. And that is one, to me, as far as I can see, is Canada at the moment. Canada is very interesting to, to look at. Okay. So Canada had a, had a kind of a new um, law. It's called the carbon pricing tax, where they, they, have, they, they, they have a tax on carbon. And mm-hmm. they collect all the money mm-hmm. and they redivide it to the local people. Yeah. And those people who have more difficulties, so the, let's say the, the social problems and things, they get more. Mm-hmm. But they have to do, of course, their investments in elect- electric heating systems and things like that. So yeah. people who have difficulties financially, they get more money out mm-hmm. of a tax pricing system. It's interesting. It's, it's still, of course, it's now going on like four or five years, maybe just a little bit too early to, to have mm. really deep conclusions. But it's interesting to see what is going on over there. So, and the other thing then, uh, what, what, uh, what you said already is, yeah, can we change because it's not that easy because politicians need to be re- uh, re-elected and they are in the business of being re-elected is also a business. Uh. But again, there, I think that the business sector, the, the economic sector is maybe the solution. Uh. Yeah. There are interesting insights when we look into the economic sector globally. Mm-hmm. Firstly, mm-hmm. 50% of the carbon emissions are uh, taken by oceans, forests, things yeah. like that. So that's one thing, uh, as, as carbon sinks, more or less. Mm. Secondly, and it's proven now also by the United Nations, is that 50% of the world economy is based on natural ecosystems. Mm-hmm. That's secondly. Thirdly, at the World Economic Forum every year in Davos, mm-hmm. there is a risk report. Mm-hmm. And for the last five or six years, the one and the second most important topic of the risk report, so the most uh, uh, the, the biggest risks, is climate change, global warming, and biodiversity mm-hmm. loss. So suddenly, the economic sector comes to the insight that if we really fail in climate change, and biodiversity, natural ecosystems laws, we will not have an economy as well. So there is no business on a dead planet. Eh? Mm-hmm. And that refers again, because yeah, a lot of people knew that a long time ago, and I refer now to Chief Seattle, 
an old Indian in in uh, in uh, America in uh, I think it was 1846 uh, mm-hmm. when they tried the Americans tried to put all these uh, Indians in reservations mm-hmm. and then he did a big statement this chief Seattle and he said only when the lost river is poisoned only when the lost fish is captured and only when the lost tree has fallen only then mankind will know they cannot eat, eat money. money. Yeah. yeah. So and yeah, it, we are now so much later, but still, that's very, very interesting because we have to know that we are nature. Mm-hmm. And this beautiful thing there, and that's more also about yeah the social impact. We need to be convinced that we decide. We say what value is or not. So. Value is in the eye of the beholder. Right? True. Uh, so if the, the the sunflowers of the paint, painter Van Gogh, mm-hmm. we pay now $175 million for that painting. But if you just count that painting on the paint and uh, and uh, the wood and used, then it's like 75 euros. Huh? Mm-hmm. So we give that value. Mm. So if, you've, if we value a forest, we cannot value that just by the the cubic meters of wood, but we have to think about the, the oxygen they make, the, 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 the water purification, and so on, so on, so on. So it's about redefining values. And that's interesting. I think that if we know that we decide, we can also decide to say this is valuable for existential even, and go then to politicians and say, hey, what mm. are you doing? You are deciding the things for people who, in the long run, will not vote for you anymore. And again, we see negative examples. We have, we have uh, with, with Trump, we saw not to, of course, that there is, yeah, it was a very good example how it, mm. uh, it is best not uh, uh, to be done. Uh, but there are, of course, also good examples. Uh, we see some, some uh, cities, big cities, uh, 10 mm. million uh, inhabitant cities, where the environment becomes a topic where they are re-elected, re-elected by taking environmental is, uh, decisions. So we have to see the good as well. There are bad things and there will be another. Maybe Trump will come back. We never know. But we have to look further than that. And we have yeah. to see the positive things. And that's also what I, how I think. I'm a positive guy. It's renewable energy. You know, I have to know what I give. <laughs> so uh, it's also that's and that uh, uh, way is it interesting. So that's what I'm into. Huh? That's, that's wonderful. I mean, um, <clears throat> I think we learned a lot from you today. Um, what I learned is, you know, um, you know, the socioeconomic language. You know that. Um, you need to. You can't convince people on a tree frog, but you can convince them on economic terms. Um, I think that is probably one of the most valuable uh, lessons out of this today. Um, and uh, hopefully, everyone that listens to it um, will understand that you know there is going to be a an interlinkage between what we are doing now and probably in ten or twenty years' time. Um, but in ten or twenty years' time, it's too late to do this. So, mm-hmm. so I can only you know, advocate together with you. And, you know, I think you're a great inspiration um, that we start to move and do stuff rather than only talking about it. Yeah. It's not what you say, it's what you do. Huh? 
that's important, of course. And two things. Uh, I wrote a book on this. It's called Saved by the Tree Frog. So if you really uh, <laughs> love what I said today, you can, of course, buy this book. And the other thing I would like to add is uh, something about hope. Mm. Um, I work a lot with, let's say, international environmentalists like David Attenborough and Jane Goodall, but also mm. with Greta Thunberg. Mm. And Jane Goodall said last year to me, when I asked her, is there still hope? And she said to me, yes, there is hope, but we have to pull up our, roll up our sleeves to make it happen. So mm. what she says is, it becomes an activity. Hope is not waiting. Hope is an activity. Mm. And also Greta Thunberg said to me, if you start to act, hope is everywhere. Mm. So in start of hoping, start acting, then hope is everywhere. So it's about something where if we think there is a problem, we we have also, let's say, the the energy, hopefully renewable energy, to do something about that. That's so important. And it's also something nice to have, to have the Very purpose much. to take care for our parents and to give something beautiful to the next generations where the oxygen is still there where the, the drinkable water is still there. And that's where, yeah, one of my really big calls in life. Thank you so much for that. You definitely have me on your side. Thank you so much. Thank you. And okay. um, it, was, it was really enjoyable. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. This is the end of today's episode, but stay tuned. Many more interesting topics are yet to come. And don't forget to hit the follow button to never miss a new and exciting episode of our podcast, Important Problems.